Welcome to Just Plain Tim, a podcast about life, faith, family, the past, the present, the future, and everything in between. Now here's your host, Tim Parrish. Thanks, Tiny, and hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Just Plain Tim podcast. I'm really impressed that you're here. Maybe you have waded through the other episodes. Maybe you're just sticking around to see if maybe this is going to get any better. Um, I promise you there are some great episodes coming uh, because those episodes are not going to be just me. I'm working on those conversations with some special guests, and you're going to get to hear some people as they just talk about uh, things that they're passionate about, things that matter to them, things that are important to them, things you might not know about them. Some of those guests are going to be people that you'll know and you'll recognize. Some of them you will not have met before. And uh, those are probably the ones I'm most excited about bringing uh, their stories uh, into this podcast. For now, I have this huge pot of ready-made audio from sermons that have been recorded. And so I'm going to continue using that to uh, keep the podcast going until I can uh, finish production on some of those other episodes. And so thank you for uh, bearing with me through these particular episodes uh, as I bring you a sermon series. Now, I started the podcast uh, with a sermon series called What's Next? And I began this back in the month of March uh, 2020 as we were in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, it moved on through the summer and the early fall, and, and it kind of morphed into a teaching series on the book of Acts. Now, that really wasn't exactly how the sermon series started, but after uh, Easter, I just kind of said, okay, what's next? And and used that question in my own mind to form the next lesson and then the next lesson, and I realized we could just push that right on through the book of Acts because that's kind of how the book of Acts moves. It's just sort of one thing after another. Now, I will tell you, you're going to hear some odd things in the audio track once we get into that uh, in just a moment. I filmed this particular uh, lesson, part one and part two of this lesson, at the battlefield, the Civil War era battlefield at Parker's Crossroads uh, here in uh, northwest Tennessee. And so you're going to hear that. Um, you're you're going to hear some things like lawnmowers and grasshoppers and all kinds of things. And I apologize for the less than ideal audio quality uh, that you're going to hear. But I think this lesson is worth listening. We'll start off with a little bit of a historical perspective and then move into some other ideas about what's next for us. So thanks for being here today. Please go rate the podcast if you haven't done that, uh, especially if you're on iTunes. Uh, ratings, and, and I'm not asking for uh, only five-star ratings unless you think that's uh, what you want to do, but ratings help us to become visible to the world of people listening to podcasts. And so uh, you can help us by rating. While you're there, click that subscribe button. And when those new episodes are ready for you and we drop those, you'll get notified and you can go listen to far better content than what you're going to be listening to uh, in these other episodes. Thank you so much for the good feedback you've given me. I appreciate that a lot. And uh, here is part one of lesson four in the What's Next series. As I stand here today in this old corn crib, I can hear a number of things. I 
Suspect you can hear some of them too. I hear the birds singing a little bit around me. I hear the noise made by grasshoppers jumping from one place to another. Just before I began recording, I was hearing over to my right the sound of a lawnmower. I can still smell the grass from that. To my left and behind me, I can hear the noise of 18-wheelers as they travel east and west on Interstate 40. But today sounds a lot different than this place would have sounded on December the 31st, 1862. Because on that day, there wouldn't have been any lawnmowers, obviously, no 18-wheelers, no interstate. There wouldn't have been as many birds singing, and the field wouldn't have been full of grasshoppers. But instead of beautiful green, the field was painted red with the blood of Union and Confederate soldiers. You see, it was on that day that the silence of this field was pierced with the thunder of cannon fire with the sharp report of rifles being fired. North versus South, Union versus Confederate. Nathan Bedford Forrest and about 1,800 of his men were moving from this area toward the Tennessee River. They were intercepted here by Union forces who were trying to stop them under the leadership of General Jeremiah Sullivan. One of Sullivan's groups, led by Colonel Dunham, were the first to meet on this field with Forrest's men. And it was not a, a good day for anybody. By the end of the day, the, the fighting had, had erupted all around. Uh, another group of men for the Union had, had kind of come in from the north. And it's hard to say who won the day. Forrest and his men pushed past Dunham's line, and, and they did make it to the river. They claimed victory for the day. The Union also claimed victory for the day because as they looked at it, they had lost 237 men on this battlefield while Forrest had lost 500. It's hard to say anybody won that day. And I suppose the way that you think about that particular battle, the Battle of Parker's Crossroads, maybe the way you think about all the battles of the Civil War might have a lot to do with uh, your present loyalty or your ideas about the war itself, about whether or not it was a just war, about which side was in the right. Both believed they were. Men on both sides willing to die because they believed they were on God's side. It's kind of hard to argue that part, isn't it? Oh, I mean, we can argue, and, and we do. We like those historical arguments, and, and we like to assert that our side, whatever our side is, is the right side. But as we look back across, we know there are certain facts about that day that are indisputable. We know about how many men died here on that day. We know the generals and the colonels that were here. We know that there were cannon uh, being fired here. We know that there were soldiers on foot. We know that there were cavalry units that were here and, and horses were involved in, in this battle. And, and there are lots of things that we can know that are true. And so if I begin with those true facts, those historical statements, well, on, on that much at least we can agree, even if we don't agree about who won or lost, even if we don't agree about what the factors were that led to the war and, and those kind of, we, we at least can agree on the historical facts from that day. Well, I think that may be why the Apostle Peter started where he did 
in Acts chapter 2. I hope you were able to be with us last week as we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit and how it enabled the, the people who are Jesus' followers to speak the message of the mighty deeds of God in languages and dialects of every person who was present on that day in Jerusalem. In fact, they, they, they assembled a rather large crowd at the noise of this mighty rushing wind. And there were some who were watching this and they were hearing people talk about understanding their own language and, and yet this being a, a small group of rather uneducated Galileans. And as they were watching all this, some people, some people were skeptical. I understand those people. I tend to be a skeptical person. The skeptical people said there's nothing holy about what's going on. Looks like to me there's a bunch of drunks around here. And Peter hears this concern. In fact, as he begins to speak there in Acts chapter 2, he, he kind of shouts and gets the attention of the crowd. It seems at least for a moment he is sort of the spokesperson, the one that, that people begin to listen to. And he says, look, give me a break. Nobody here is drunk. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. And even if these are people who were going to be intoxicated, it's a little early in the day for you to think that they're so drunk that this is happening. But since you asked, I would like to tell you about what's really going on here. And so he begins there in, in Acts chapter 2 with this sermon, with this statement, sort of a historical view of how they got where they were. And I want to begin reading with what he said in Acts chapter 2, verse number 16. Peter said, No one is drunk here, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it should be in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, men and women, in those days I'll pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned dark and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Peter started by looking back historically to the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2 is where he begins. It's not the only place. There's some of what he says that will come from Joel chapter 7. But he's speaking to a group of religious people who if they knew anything, they knew their prophets. They read Joel and in fact many of them probably had these words committed to memory. And they had been using these words in their hearts holding on to the hope of the anticipation of the Messiah coming one day. And Peter says, I want you to understand that's what's going on here. Even if you don't agree with me on where I'm going next, can we at least agree on the fact that historically, this is true, Joel said this as the spokesperson of God. Well, nobody could really argue with that. He was quoting scripture right out of the Hebrew scriptures. These were verses they knew. They'd heard them in the, the, the synagogues and, and they'd heard them around the temple and they'd heard them in their homes. So then he continues in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross 
by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, quoting again from scriptures they would have known from the Psalms, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. My flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, one of the things that Peter does here from, from Psalm 16 is to, to point these people again to a, a solid historical fact, a, a basis in Scripture, something they couldn't argue with. And he says, we know David said some stuff about life after death, about going to a grave but not staying there. But, he continues, David did die, and David was buried, and today we still know where David's tomb is. So David wasn't talking about himself. He wasn't talking about his own body, not suffering decay. He was talking about someone else. Verse 30 and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead, David did, and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Now, pause with me right there if you're reading. Let's think about what Peter has said to this point. Peter has said, look, I want to remind you about something Joel said. They knew what Joel said. They couldn't argue with it. Joel said, there's going to be some specific signs that are going to mark the time that the Messiah has come. Then he says, uh, David said some certain things that would apply directly to the Messiah. Well, nobody really could argue with those things. But he takes both of those historical facts, those historical statements, and he says, now listen. So you, you hear what Joel says. You, you know those words. And Joel was talking about the, the sun being darkened, and he was talking about the, the pouring out of the Spirit on your sons and daughters, and, and they would prophesy. That's happening now. And since that's happening now, and we saw the sun go dark at the crucifixion of Jesus, then it is reasonable to understand that Joel was talking about Jesus, that Jesus really is the Messiah. And he said, God proved it to you. All these signs and wonders that God did, you saw them, you, you heard about them, that proved that Jesus was really the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and we saw the resurrected Jesus. We are, I, I put my, my physical, my hands touched the body of Jesus. I ate with Jesus. I had breakfast on the beach with Jesus. You need to understand that I am not hallucinating. I've not lost my mind. And there are a lot of us witnesses. Eventually, Paul will tell us that at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. And he says, listen, David died, 
but he talked about someone else who would come out of the grave. It wasn't David. It was an eventual descendant of David. Jesus is from the line of David. Jesus was raised from the dead, and I saw it, and, and that proves that David also was talking. So you, you know Joel, and you know David, and you need to understand that, that their prophecies, those historical statements, converge in the real life person of Jesus of Nazareth. You might not think so, but it was true. It was true. According to God's plan, it was true. Now something happens next when he, when he tells them that you crucified Jesus. He has said enough and they have become convicted enough by his preaching and by the events of the day that they fulfill yet another prophecy that shows up in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. In fact, I want to I go over there because it's easy to, to see this happen and think it was just a spur-of-the-moment thing, but I want you to understand that some of these things as they happen are things that are happening exactly as God had said they were going to. So in Zechariah chapter 12, we read in verse number 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is Jesus speaking through the prophet, right? Me whom they've pierced. So they'll look at me whom they've pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They'll weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Well, that's exactly what happens. The Bible says that when Peter finished preaching with more than just what we've read here, they were so convicted that the actual language is used is that they were pierced themselves to their hearts. They were cut to the hearts. Why? Because they knew the history. It wasn't something they could argue with. And they had not wanted to accept the interpretation of that history as finding its, its ultimate realization in Jesus of Nazareth. They just, well, there were just too many reasons it couldn't be. But finally, they stopped long enough to listen. And it all made sense. Joel was talking about Jesus and this day of Pentecost. David, in fact, was talking about Jesus who went to the tomb but didn't stay in the tomb. History meets the present. Prophecy meets realization. The Messiah, the long-awaited one, came. And he died at the hands of those he came to save. It is hard, isn't it, to kind of sort all this out. The, the thought of, of God planning this and designing this and organizing this. And, and that this not being a, a shock to him, but in fact the very way it was supposed to happen. That's hard to, that's hard to reconcile that with the reaction of these people because Peter told them this was part of the ultimate plan of God. He meant for it to go this way. And yet there is such a conviction on the part of people and I think probably some of those people who were there at the, the uh, trial and the crucifixion probably in this crowd. There are probably some people on that day listening to Peter preach who had perhaps been in a previous crowd. Maybe they had laid palm branches before Jesus as he rode in on a donkey. Maybe just a few days later, things had changed to the point that they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It happened. They kind of went on with life until suddenly something, something big happened. That something big, the coming of the Holy Spirit, was God's way of saying, hey, 
the story's not over. And it was their moment of saying, oh man, what will we do? Well, if you're like me, have you ever found yourself in trouble wondering, what will I do? Maybe that is a question that you can kind of identify with. Maybe you understand the feeling uh, of knowing that something is really wrong. Maybe even knowing that you've made a big mess out of something. And yet you, you have this idea that someone, somewhere, something can help alleviate the trouble that you're in or, or solve the problem that you've created. Well, I think that's kind of the question that those folks in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were asking. And I think in the next part of our lesson together, you're going to hear maybe the best solution they could have ever been offered. Here's Tim with part two of What's Next, Lesson 4. So the sermon itself is pretty straightforward, pretty simple. It started in a place of relative certainty, history. It looked back to something familiar, the prophets. Prophets that they knew, one of whom was the, the one maybe most closely connected with what was being looked for and watched for in the Messiah, David, the great king of days gone by. They heard those words and they were not unfamiliar words. And when the pieces all came together, when, when the prophecy came together in realization with the person of Jesus, there was an immediate reaction, a response. In fact, we saw in the last segment that just like Zechariah had prophesied, the people were cut to their hearts. They were pierced to their hearts. They, they felt something. They were moved. They were convicted whatever word you'd like to use there. But they knew something had to happen. They knew that, that there had to be some response to what they'd done. They, they knew they had been part of something they, they were ashamed of. They, they didn't want to be complicit in anymore. And they knew that Peter, speaking on behalf of God, had the answer. And so they just said, what must we do? And Peter replied to them in words that are pretty familiar to most of us, beginning in chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Repent and be baptized. Get rid of your sins. Exchange the old you for the new you filled with the Holy Spirit. It's obvious that this is not an intoxicated group of people, the thing that has brought this language thing about, the thing that has brought this sermon about is God's Holy Spirit. And there might not have been a real well-developed theology of the Holy Spirit for these folks, like we might think about the Holy Spirit today, but they had long understood that the Spirit of God, the presence of God was a powerful, creative, moving, redeeming thing. Peter said, you have sinned. 
but there is something that can take it away. In fact, this whole story that I've just shared with you about Jesus coming and living and and performing miracles and then going to the cross and going to the tomb and then being raised and being at God's right hand, that itself is the redeeming story of God. It's the way that God has bought you. It's the way that God has paid for you. It's the way that God has atoned for your sin debt. And it's not just that you're forgiven. There's more. There's a bonus. You are forgiven. And in exchange for the old sinful you, you get to receive God's own spirit in you. Now, there's been a lot of debate through the years about exactly what that means. There still is today about exactly what is the evidence of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the simplest way that I know to put that is that when Paul will later describe the fruit of the Spirit, well, if you look in your life and you see those things, there's pretty good evidence right there that the Spirit is leading and directing your life. If you're living a life void of the fruit of the Spirit, it might mean that you're living a life without the Holy Spirit in you. Or or maybe if you've been saved as this describes and, and the Spirit came in you, it may be that you have quenched or poured water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's let's read a little bit farther because I want you to see what happened here. And then I want us to talk about why this was what Peter said. And so those who had received his word were baptized. This is verse 41. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls added to the group of believers already following Jesus because when they heard the words repent and be baptized, they weren't strange or new words to them. In fact, if they had been around John's preaching at all, John's whole message had been repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repent for the Lamb of God is here. And what was he doing at the Jordan River? He was baptizing people. In fact, the idea of being immersed or baptized or washed had long been a part of the story of God's people. Going all the way back even to creation, the image of of life being drawn out of the waters. And then that image just keeps showing up again and again. It shows through the flood imagery. We come into the time when you have the establishment of the priesthood and we see the the necessary washings of the priest. We see the ritual washings that that had to go on for other conditions for, for being cleansed. And it came to be that in the time of Jesus, so many people were actually practicing ritual immersions, ritual baptisms, to cleanse themselves before approaching the temple. That excavations have shown us, archaeology has shown us a number of houses in the proximity of the temple with their own small baptistry, a mikvot, a place where they could go in, step down some steps into the water and immerse themselves and come out cleansed and ready. And so when you come to this sermon, it's not something brand new. It's not an idea that they hadn't heard before that they weren't familiar with it. They knew what it meant to repent. Even if they hadn't heard the preaching of John, they understood the concept of turning away from what you've done that's bad or wrong and turning toward something that's good or better. And that's what they did. They, they didn't fight this idea. They didn't equate the fact that, that uh, repentance and baptism earned something for them or bought something for them. It was just the formula that God chose. Why? Well, I... I I'm not sure. God hasn't told me exactly why that's how he chose to do it. 
but it was simple. It was simple. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Now, we've really done a lot through the centuries to complicate this, and it didn't take long until it got very complicated. Even in the early days of the church, there were a lot of discussions and debates about exactly who could baptize and who could be baptized and the form and the method of baptism. And, and then through the years, a lot of theological discussion about exactly what place baptism has in the, in the salvation of a soul. Let's just try to back ourselves up for a moment and think about those people on the day of Pentecost. They heard the message from history to present reality, from prophecy to Jesus. And they understood, maybe for the first time, it was if their eyes were open, they saw this was Jesus. We participated in his death, even though it was a necessary death. And we don't think God is okay with that, and we've got to do something about it. We've got to respond to that in some way. How do we respond to the story of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus? It is by engaging in and participating in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Over the last 55 or so years that this church building has been in use, I don't know how many people have stepped into this water where I'm seated today. I don't know how many men and women, boys and girls, sometimes husbands and wives, sometimes maybe entire families, sometimes an entire row of teenagers during a particularly powerful moment of revival, I don't know how many people have been in this baptismal pool. Not to mention those who've been baptized in swimming pools, hot tubs, whirlpools, plus those who've been baptized in lakes and ponds and rivers. You see, for a long time, people have been being baptized. But if I think about those who have come to this particular place, some of whom I've had the privilege of stepping down into the water with. I think about what they, what they understood or what they knew. And I think what they knew was really this simple. In fact, I think it doesn't have to be more complicated than this. Every person who stepped into this water has understood that this is, this is just regular water. It's, it, there's nothing magical or mystical about this water itself. It, it's water that is circulated and exchanged and kept warm. It's the same water that flows through the, the pipes in your house if you live in Huntington and get your water from the city of Huntington. So this water itself, it's just water. This actual fiberglass tub, there's, there's nothing particularly special about this formed tub. In fact, there's nothing particularly special about this tub being in this building filled with this water. Those things are not the point. The point is, is not the person who administers the baptism. That's going to come up in the early days of the church. The point was people had a sin problem. And they understood that they needed to do something. They needed to, to respond in some way because they had accepted. They now had faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And they wanted to respond in some way to this newfound faith. And the formula was simple. Repent and be baptized. Your sins will be taken away by the water? No. By the person baptizing you? No. By the blood 
of Jesus Christ? Yes. Be baptized in imitation of the example of Jesus? Yes. Be baptized because it's what the apostles would teach as a part of the gospel? Yes. Yes, all of those things. Be baptized to, to go into the water one way and, and come out another? Yes. Yes. You see, 3,000 people might not have understood all the nuances of baptism that we talk about today. But this much they knew. They had a problem. They asked an inspired apostle for a solution as they acted in faith in Jesus Christ. Peter gave them an answer. Repent, be baptized. Your sins will be taken away. And in exchange for your old sinfulness, you will actually receive something far greater. The Spirit of God himself will come and live inside you. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. So they did. 3,000 people. Today's message, I really think it boils down to quite a simple one. History and prophecy point to Jesus as the Messiah. He was born as a man in miraculous circumstances, but he lived a normal life. He, he experienced what we do. He, he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet ultimately the plan of God was not for him to come to the earth and live forever as a reigning king. His plan for Jesus was to come, live the life of kingdom citizenship in front of us, live the perfect example of the scriptures in front of us, fulfilling the law in front of us, ultimately going to the cross because of us and for us, going to the grave in what looked like defeat, rising from the grave in what was surely victory, and then ascending back to the Father where he is waiting until the Father sends him back. Prophecy points us to, to Jesus as the fulfillment, the realization of all those things. And so somehow, some way, we, like those early Jews on Pentecost, we come to a place where we believe and we accept that this really is, it really is Jesus. He really is the Messiah. And because we accept that in full faith and we confess that we accept, we believe the story, we look for a response and Peter gives us one. Repent, turn away from the old self embrace a new life in the kingdom and, and, and carry out, reenact almost, the, participate in the gospel by being put to death and being buried and being raised again just like Jesus was. That's what we find in Romans chapter 6. These people on Pentecost, they didn't even know that much. They simply knew they had a sin problem. They believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the answer to their sin problem. They were looking for an appropriate response. And the response was given to them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise, Peter said, is for you and your children and for those that centuries from now will accept that Jesus really is the Messiah. Have you ever made a promise that you couldn't keep? or at least that you didn't keep? Well, I suspect we've all done that. But the beauty of that is that God never has done that. 
Every promise he's ever made, he's kept. And that's going to continue to be true. So the promises that we find in the Bible, the promises that we hear from the inspired men and women of God, those promises are still just as sure and true and guaranteed as they ever were. Isn't that great? Well, you've been listening to the Just Plain Tim podcast, a podcast where we talk about life, faith, family, the past, the present, the future, and everything in between. For your host, Tim Parrish, thanks for stopping by. We'll see you next time.